The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm the host of the podcast, as well as Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary. And I have with me, joining by uh, Facebook Messenger this morning, Dr. Mark Jones. Mark, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on the show, Zach. Dr. Jones is pastor at Faith Reformed PCA in Vancouver, British Columbia, where he is um, serving the Lord alongside of his dear wife, Barbara, and their four children there in the congregation. And he is the author of several excellent books, including Knowing Christ and God Is and, and others. He's done his academic work in historical theology, focusing on the Puritans and post-Reformation reform scholastics. He is a subject matter expert in those areas. But today we're talking about something a little bit different. It's a book he recently published through Christian Focus Publications called If I Could Speak Letters from the Womb. It's a moving um, volume of letters uh, written uh, hypothetically, and I'll let him uh, talk a bit more about that, um, to a woman considering abortion. And as such, this book is, uh, is very important, and I've wanted to get him in, on here on my schedule for a while to discuss it with me uh, for your benefit, because I think it's, um, I think it's not only uh, personally convicting and also serves to soften the hearts of all those who read it, but it can also be quite useful in ministry to women and men who are in a difficult situation of unplanned pregnancy or what have you. Dr. Jones... Let's open up the conversation. Can you elaborate on what exactly this book is about beyond what I've you know, very, uh, very briefly opened up for us? And what was your motivation in writing it? The book's uh, framed in a way where a, a young girl, and I'm, I'm not even you know, using the phrase a, a fetus, but I mean, let's, uh, that, that is a word that is used, or I, I prefer preborn. And uh, she's, you know, roughly, you know, 19, 20, 21 weeks in, in that age range. And um, she has the opportunity in her mother's womb uh, to write a, a, what I hope would be a compelling case to her mother uh, that she would uh, not be killed. And so what happens is she, she finds out that her mother is contemplating an abortion. Uh, because she's at a stage of life in the womb where she can hear. And uh, as she writes these letters, they're obviously uh, hypothetical and they require some indulgence from the reader because, um, you know, most uh, 20-week-old fetuses don't write letters. But um, it's, a, it's just a, a way of addressing the issue in a, in a, you know, a, a unique manner. So... Uh, that's what happens. She writes letters, and there's a, a whole host of different letters uh, designed to to compel the mother to ultimately uh, go through with the pregnancy, and not just go through with the pregnancy, but raise her. Uh, and the the question of even adoption is raised if the mother doesn't decide to raise her. But you know, ultimately, the goal in uh, what I'm trying to do is that a, a mother would raise the child for God's glory. So it's it's not just Let's protect the preborn, but let's also 
push for the, the godly raising of children as well. Who do you hope gives this book attention? Is this written primarily for a Christian audience and those who would be ministering to women in this situation and men in this situation? Or is this written directly to those who are considering terminating a pregnancy, uh, killing their unborn child? We obviously are hoping that mothers who I think, at least I think, are on the fence with the issue will get the book in their hands. I, I, you know, I, I think miracles, um, you know, we use it, I'm using it very generally now, but someone who's totally committed to abortion and, and doesn't want the child and, and for some reason reads this book would take, I think, an extraordinary work from from God to decide, you know, I'm not going to go through with the abortion. And I don't want to say that that can't happen, but I'm trying to be also realistic that uh, maybe um, this is a book that will help women who really are struggling, aren't, you know, black or white on the issue, but kind of in this gray zone of, um, I want to keep it, but I don't think I can. And, and this maybe pushes them to the keep the child uh, side. So that's that's my uh, initial aim, but then I don't believe that it should be limited to them. I believe a lot of Christians need to read this book, and I think given the fact that it has pictures, and I don't mean that pejoratively, but it's letters, they're not long, it's its a fairly short and easy read. I, I think if Christians just are um, confronted with a different approach to this topic, it may galvanize them a little more to, to speak in churches and pregnancy centers, etc., to to, to kind of keep pushing where we've taken our foot off the gas uh, a little in terms of our collective work as a, as a church on this issue. So it's, it's definitely not just for mothers um, struggling. It's for the church uh, at large. Um, in reading it myself, I found it to be um, moving personally, but it elicited in me two contrasting feelings, both of which I think are sanctified feelings and the feelings of a regenerate person. And one was righteous indignation and, and even a sense of anger that anyone would take the life of a little one so defenseless and coming into the world, but also a, a sense of deep compassion for, uh, for those who are facing this particular situation and, um, and, and all the conflicting emotions they must have in general. Because I think what you've highlighted here is, is, very, is crucially important. There are two kinds of women who consider an abortion. There are those who are lock, stock, and barrel convinced that this is what they're going to do. Um, perhaps they're calloused, seared in their conscience, or what have you. But then there are those who are on the fence. And you're maybe perhaps even your primary yeah. audience there. And for them, we must have great compassion, even as we plead with them, even at the gates of an abortuary, plead with them not to, uh, not to sacrifice their children to whatever it is that's motivating them to even consider it, self-interest, fear, economic instability, whatever it is. And so um, this book elicited not only uh, righteous indignation, but also tenderness of heart and compassion. Um, you know, we were discussing this a little bit before the podcast episode, and Perhaps some of our listeners would think this was unwise of me to allow this to happen, but it was it was calculated um, in its decision. My wife and I were on the same page. Our nine-year-old is is quite mature in many areas, 
And she, um, she saw this book lying on my desk while I was working from home during the quarantine and uh, preparing for this interview. And she asked if she could read it. And so after discussing it with my wife, I allowed her to do so. And it didn't take her very long. Uh, she's not just a bright girl, but this is a very easy book to read. And she came back to me and uh, she had this look on her face of a bit, um, a little bit of confusion, but mostly just wondering, you know, why is this even a situation? And we had an excellent gospel-saturated conversation um, in which, you know, my daughter's heart was being formed, I think, after the likeness of Christ as the Holy Spirit was working in her. And, um, and she developed these twin convictions of righteous indignation, but also great tenderness and compassion, uh, particularly uh, after that last letter where um, you have, you've included, Dr. Jones, a letter from the mother to her, uh, at that point, aborted child several year, years later where she asks forgiveness and, yeah. um, and, and, and is, you know, obviously as pastors, we're going to be ministering to people who are in that situation as well and seeking to apply the balm of the gospel and of mercy and compassion uh, to their broken hearts over what they've done. And so I, I found it very helpful, and uh, we're going to talk about, just in a little bit, um, a lot of this emotional component, how that fits into Reformed theology. But before we get there, I want to talk about the book a little bit more and your composition of it. As you were writing these letters, as a man, <laughs> you know, that kind of begs the question here, what sources or inputs were you handling in composing these letters and in putting the book together? Yeah, that's uh, obviously a, a fair, a fair question. Uh, I think you know, for me, uh, I am a man. I do have a daughter. I have a wife. I I have a mother, a sister. You know, it's not like I'm I'm living in a a, a box without. Um, and I have a congregation with many ladies, and they actually played quite an important role. Um, some of the ladies in my congregation, which I'll get to in a, in a second, but you know, what I'm trying to do here is is take my um, knowledge of kind of I'm taking some philosophical concepts, some historical concepts. There's a chapter where I'm bringing in Nelson Mandela and and the speech, uh, his famous speech about how his freedom and the freedom of those on the outside in South Africa, especially the uh, those who were not subject to the atrocities of apartheid. He um, he wrote a, a, a he gave a very famous speech read by his daughter, and. Uh, it's, so I'm bringing in some of those kind of uh, historical contexts, some uh, stuff to do with Nazi Germany, some of the parallels there, and then also, you know, based on my uh, Christology um, interests, uh, talking about how Christ was in the womb, and 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 so I figured I had a, a somewhat of a unique context to bring those things together, but it was never just um, that. So. I also felt it was important for for mothers and and young uh, girls to read the book before it went to to the um, press and and they gave a lot of valuable insight encouragement. It was um, in that sense a, a community project where um, they would say, "Hey, what about this word here?" or "Hey, I really liked this," or "Did you think?" And so um, that's not obvious when you, you read the book about the input, but it certainly was there, and um, I'm very grateful for that input from the females uh, in my congregation, especially, uh, that I received. 
as you put the book together, did you find that the structure of the book and what order that you placed these letters, did it change at all as you received feedback from the women in your congregation, even the young girls who read it uh, as review readers and your wife and, and other women in your life? Uh, did you did you rearrange things? How significant were the changes that you made? There were a lot of um, shifting of, of letters. Uh, the publisher also worked with me, and there was a, a lady um, editor who who did a great job. Um, and we we had discussions. There was even a letter that I left out. Actually, it was uh, called Mom's letter to Zoe. And it was actually the mom writing the letter to Zoe, explaining that she was um, going to go through with the abortion, but also detailing the the gory dynamics and realities of what happens in the abortion. And uh, we just felt at the end it wasn't um, it, it took away a bit from the flow, and maybe wasn't going to be um, necessary. Maybe even a little too. Uh, hard-hitting. It, it was kind of mixed. Some people liked it. Some thought, yeah, I can see the point. So there were some changes, you know, like any uh, like any book that you hope is is decent and, and authors can appreciate this. There's a lot of painful uh, excising of, of contents that you have to do sometimes, and um, it, that's just part of putting out something you hope will, will flow well and, and read well, and, and that's, uh, yeah, so that's that happened for sure. As I as I look through the book in front of me again, uh, one thing that sticks out to me is chapter seven is a letter called Happy Father's Day, and it's the one letter in the book that's addressed um, from the daughter that's that's addressed not to the mother but to her father, and yeah. um, and that that first line sticks with me. While I'm alive, it is always Father's Day, right? This letter that mom passed on to you isn't mistimed. You are a father. And that's an, a crucially important message for men to hear, especially because, uh, at least anecdotally, in accounts I've read of, of people considering abortions, it seems that the role of the father is often, not always, but often determinative of the outcome. If, yeah. the, if the father is supportive or even indifferent, the child is much more likely to, uh, to be carried successfully to term. But if the father is opposed and even uh, an, an antagonistic toward the mother having the child uh, frequently, much more frequently, it's very likely that the mother will, in fact, uh, select to abort her child in response to that pressure. Yeah, that's, uh, that's true. And um, I think for me, they, they need to, uh, you know, it's a whole area that's un, untapped, not untapped, but kind of... Um, What's the issue here with fathers? Why are they unwilling? And and I think that is definitely the crucial part, uh, the unwillingness of fathers to be responsible. And I think that's not just like in terms of abortion. That's a societal issue um, where fathers are just simply not um, willing to to be responsible for their children, in, even in small ways, you know, like, Fathers who let their kids just go play video games for hours upon hours, um, it's the same principle, root of sin, of just of selfishness, disinterest, etc. That's right. And I'd be the first to tell you, and my wife would be the second to tell you, that I myself am guilty of that nonchalance, um, especially on weekends when I'm exhausted after a week of work and I'm sitting around the house. And uh, though we're faithful in family worship for the most part, 
there are times in the middle of the afternoon where my kids aren't playing video games or something, but they're off in independent play and I'm not really giving much thought to what they're doing or how I might be more involved and proactive in shepherding their hearts in the, in the few hours that I do get with them week to week. And so that's convicting to me and particularly you're relating that to this much more dramatic situation as described in the book is convicting to me as I hope it would be convicting to others. And there's more we could say about that that would take us probably far afield from the podcast topic at hand. But one thing that would stick out to any of our listeners who haven't yet seen the book and, and might even be skeptical about the book as we've described it, if you flip through, um, Dr. Jones said there are plenty of pictures. Um, there's a lot of nice white space. It's easy to read. And obviously these letters are, like I've said, moving. They appeal to the emotions. And they might wonder, how, how is this not uh, an example of emotional manipulation? And there's actually a long history in, uh, in Reformed homiletics and theology of the appropriateness of appealing to the emotions. And so would you open up for us from a theological perspective the proper place and use of emotions, um, not only in preaching, but also in writing literature, in polemics, and in theology in general? Well, that's uh, that's quite a quite a topic. I can I can give a few points, um, and and hopefully those will suffice for now. It's, sure. It's a big, it's, I just did a, a, a conference in South Africa on this book, and one of my talks was uh, on emotional theology. And and you know one of the things in reform circles we sometimes hear um, are are slogans like "Don't trust your emotions, but trust God's word." and I, I get the well-meaning intention behind that, but that's like, how do you trust something as a human being and get rid of your emotions? Uh, it's We are made up of emotions. And the Psalms are <laughs> really the, the clearest example of emotional theology. I mean, th these guys are all over the place. Uh, there's shouts for joy, there's weeping, there's there's anger, there's, there's all sorts of things going on. So yeah, I, I think what we need to do is how do we use our emotions appropriately? And that is, um, that's the key question. So you look at the gospel accounts of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's incredible when you do a, a study on his emotions uh, and how they're revealed to us. You know, he was, he was moved to tears with with Lazarus, he was uh, the words that John uses. He was deeply moved in his spirit, or sometimes when he gets angry at his disciples or the Pharisees, and and the, the Greek language, especially that is that is used, is just a raging vexation that he has. So we are uh, emotional beings. We have to accept that, and then we have to say, well, how do we? Um, how does grace and the truth and, and these things work well with our emotions rather than um, sin uh, skewing our emotions? That's always the, 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 the great question. And, um, you know, Augustine discussed this. It goes way back, you know, to the early church. Augustine um, talks about even the, the, the emotions of, of pain, guilt, and mourning, uh, those what we call negative emotions, not that they're necessarily bad, but they're, they're not what we say positive, joy and happiness. No, they um, hurt. <laughs> yeah. They're painful. So, yeah. 
And Augustine, he said something to the effect that, you know, so long as we wear the infirmity of this life, we are uh, rather worse uh, men than better if we don't have these emotions at all. So, you know, we, God crying in the face of sadness and, and pain is a gift God gives to us. Uh, many of us, some people, you know, channel it a bit differently, but a lot of us, you know, we know what it's like to, to have tears over sadness and you know, we need to be thankful for these emotions that God gives us. So when you look at the story of abortion, why shouldn't we be allowed to express various emotions over those questions? And so when Zoe's writing letters, of course she's going to make an emotional appeal because we do make decisions based upon our emotions. And I don't think it's always wrong to make a decision based upon our emotions. You, you, for example, if I see um, somebody who, a, a, a child who is begging for food, and I've been in the situation in South Africa, and, and you're moved with compassion, I'm thankful that I feel compassion and want to help. But imagine you weren't given that emotion. I mean, it'd be an awful situation for us in this world. So the point of the book, besides the abortion question, is can we use emotions? Uh, in a way that will bring glory to God, and can we use the emotional arguments well, not just toss them aside? Indeed. There is, um, particularly in the pro-life movement, broadly speaking, and I was just talking about this with Dr. Piper last week, before I was a Christian, uh, I found the very idea of abortion to be abhorrent, to be a transgression of inalienable rights to life and, and all that stuff. Um, as someone who appreciated the writings of the Founding Fathers and being politically minded. But it was, even, even with all of that, which is true and good, it was a bit of a cerebral appraisal of the situation that was only half-baked. And it wasn't until after I became a Christian and I interacted with some women who had had abortions, who had um, you know, taken the lives of their unborn children and felt immense grief and lasting pain over that and, and had repented of it um, and, uh, and, and gotten some more life experience as a Christian that my feelings, my emotions, having been sanctified, having been worked upon by the Holy Spirit, really came to provide that missing half to my appraisal of the situation and my reaction to it. And, yeah. and, then, and that's so important for men pursuing the ministry, but also just for any Christian who's going to have these yeah. relationships and, and, and situations come up in their lives and be called upon to comfort others out of the comfort which the Holy Spirit has provided unto them. And, um, and so I, I greatly appreciate it. And here at Greenville in our preaching classes in homiletics, uh, Mr. Breno Macedo, Dr. Piper, Dr. McGraw all emphasize the, the validity, uh, usefulness, and also necessity of appealing to the whole man with the whole Christ, and that includes appealing to the emotions as well as the will and the affections and the mind and the intellect. And um, we don't ever want to be manipulative, but we do want to be properly persuasive. And with, with that in mind, have you received reports from uh, from people who picked up your book or have used it or distributed it that it has actually had um, its intended result in any cases where even one woman has picked it up who's been considering abortion and then after reading it decides, no, I'm, I'm going to have this baby? Have you heard back anything like that? 
Yeah, uh, that's. I'm glad. I'm glad you asked that. I mean, in one sense, I kind of it, the, the book still hasn't. Um, it it's still kind of new, and and then with how crazy this year has been, it's like <laughs> it's maybe not been at the forefront of a lot of people's thinking because of uh, other issues that are rightly taking up uh, people's time. Certainly. Uh, right. Now. But. Um, I, I had a story, a friend of mine in South Africa, actually, his daughter uh, goes to school and she found out one of her friends was, was pregnant and the friend um, was in high school and went and told her dad and her dad actually kicked her out of the home unless she got an abortion. So um, when, when she came to... Uh, home, my friend's daughter came home, she had the book, If I Could Speak, and, and she gave it to her friend who was pregnant, and her friend actually read it and said, no, she's going to decide to keep the child, and that meant the father had displaced her from the home, and she had to find somewhere else to live, which was really tragic, and it's a sad story, you know, in one sense she's pre preserving a life, and in another sense the father is is deciding that he can't have a daughter who's going to be pregnant, you know, and, and a lot of it's image and, and things like that. So um, that was a, a kind of an, a good story and a bad story rolled into one. And I need to actually find out um, what the, the situation is, the updated situation. So I'm glad you asked that because it's it's been a, a little while now since I've figured out what's happened and how what type of support she may or may not have received. I mean, the book only really came out in December, right? Yeah, yeah. And so this was, this young girl's probably in her second trimester, maybe third trimester, early third trimester at this point. So it hasn't hasn't been all that long. Yeah, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I'd like to know, and that's one of the other problems. I mean, the book doesn't address it, but it's a, ch a church issue where um, what are we doing uh, as churches to really support those in those situations and. In a country like South Africa, very different than Canada, where I'm from, and also from the United States, uh, you have um, different abilities and different organizations to help. And, and there, in South Africa, the help would be a lot less available in some respects than it would in North America. So um, it's, it's also a, a, a sort of sociological problem as well of just how little... Um, help is available in places, and that's also um, tragic. I have, you know, you have four kids, I have five kids. I think each of us are well acquainted with the great expense of medical bills involved in carrying a child to term, to put it clinically, and um, and delivery, particularly here in the States with our Wonkadoo um, healthcare system right now. And it is just stunning to me that it costs so much more to have a child and even to adopt a child than it does to abort a child. And at that point, I think it does become a social, societal, economic, public policy problem that Christians, individual Christians, and, um, and perhaps even churches have every right to address. Now, I know that the idea of churches addressing public policy is controversial, and I don't want to get into a uh, discussion about two kingdoms or anything like that on this podcast. But certainly we can all agree that individual Christians should be um, active in seeking forth solutions to help and to support 
women who are in this situation and on the fence and make it easier, um, as difficult as it will be, make it easier to have a child rather than to abort a child. There's something deeply wrong about a society where the path of least resistance is actually having an abortion rather than um, delivering a child into the world. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up as well. I do want to appeal to our listeners to make use of this book, uh, especially those listeners who have an active ministry um, or uh, take an interest in uh, ministering to uh, to women who are considering abortions, either as volunteers at crisis pregnancy centers. There are many great ones around our country here in the United States, I'm sure in Canada as well, or, um, or more individually, um, even those who do open-air preaching in front of um, abortuaries and Planned Parenthoods. My understanding is there are at least a few open-air preachers who bring their families along and have a table set up with this book available um, for just taking up and, and reading. And so I, I hope more people do that, and this book gets a wide distribution and gets into the hands of those who could most benefit from it. And I, I really appreciate you publishing it and writing it and Christian Focus publishing it and, um, and the people who've endorsed it, uh, promoting it as well in their various spheres of influence. Uh, but do you have any closing thoughts for us before I let you go? For me, it's the book I, I prayed it's in the Lord's hands, you know, the, just the, the thought to do it and the, the production and the help I got from so many different individuals and those who've been keen to help. Um, you know, one of the things on, uh, it's it's been selling well through Christian um, booksellers, but I think even on somewhere like Amazon, where I don't know why the book isn't right now, I don't know what's happened, but it's not being sold directly by Amazon and I need to figure out what's happening there. Um but even just reviews, those help as well. So people who've read the book and can give a quick review and stuff, those types of things I'm told will help. And and that's just part of getting the message out is, is people hearing these things. So um, I don't uh, I don't know what else I, I would say except that it's just a prayer of mine that God uses however he sees fit. Um, a book like this, and if he decides not to use it widely, that's his prerogative. You know, I've done what I can, and I'm, I'm kind of like the farmer waiting now for the the crop to see what um, happens with this. And if it comes to nothing, it comes to nothing. And if it, 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 it does some things where people's lives are safe, then, you know, that's all down to the Lord's um, providential, gracious hand in this. So. That's my that's my kind of outlook on this whole thing. Well, thank you, Mark. Um, this is near and dear to my heart, as you said. The little girl in the in the book, you gave her the name Zoe. My oldest daughter's name is Zoe Jane, which means life is a gift. And this has been a yeah. ringing theme in our family, as we have five kids, and uh, it hasn't always been easy providing for them. But the Lord has always been faithful, and we remind ourselves all the time: life is a gift. And, and I want my kids to grow up knowing that and internalizing that, that being knit into the fabric of their souls, so to speak, by the hand of the Holy Spirit who does such things. And, um, and it was a benefit to me in, in walking through a conversation with my daughter that I think will bear and has borne much spiritual fruit already. And, and probably similar conversations that are going to come up with my other children in the future and with any of their friends, and certainly in my ministry as a pastor, Lord willing. 
Again, the book is published by Christian Focus Publications, uh, www.christianfocus.com, and it is called If I Could Speak, Letters from the Womb. Looking at Amazon right now, it looks like it is available on Amazon for purchase, either new or used, um, in hardcover, and uh, certainly it would be available from a variety of Christian booksellers as well, Reformation Heritage Books. Um, I don't know if Westminster... Uh, seminary books is carrying it or not but um, well worth getting well worth uh, recommending to your local Christian crisis pregnancy centers and use even in even in your church's ministry to those who are most vulnerable or um, or in tough situations to put it euphemistically dr. Jones thank you for joining me and thank you so much for writing this book yeah pleasure thanks for having me on Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.